You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Elise Perry. This is WFHB Local News for Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro provides a rundown of news surrounding the disability community in today's edition of Disabilitin. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on the WFHB Local News. More following today's feature, but first, your local headlines. The Ellettsville Town Council met on January 22nd to discuss a new initiative, Ordinance 2024-02, a plan for implementing a new e-commerce utilities platform to pay bills and transfer funds online. The utilities clerk asked me to prepare this ordinance to allow them to use what's called an e-commerce platform or online business platform for paying bills, um, doing direct deposits for payroll, and also uh, to process utility payments. And the town already has an ordinance in place that allows for ACH, automatic clearinghouse transactions, and a lot electronic funds transferred. And I just took that ordinance and tinkered with it and just added some language to make clear that it could also be used to change funds, transfer funds, do lateral transfers between accounts. It would allow um, utility payments to be processed and would allow the utilities clerk to use those services in addition to the town clerk treasurer. Councilmember William Ellis asked if the platform would allow residents to pay their utility bills online with their bank information. Deputy Clerk Noel Coiner responded affirmatively, saying that the platform would make it easier for customers to set up and track payments. The additional cost right now, we would have to initially buy the machine, and Gary Brimley, who I'm working with at People State Bank, um, has said that the machine to rent it would be $30 a month or we can buy it outright for $500. And that's the machine that would be able to actually run the checks for the utility payment side. And we already have business online set up. We've just not utilized the platform. So we've actually been paying for some of those services that we're just not utilizing. So the total figure I don't have exactly yet because we're going to pay on a what we actually use versus just the lump sum that we've been paying and not utilizing. The council ultimately decided to table Ordinance 2024-02 until their next meeting. Next, the council discussed approving the hiring of two new employees for the Department of Public Works. The first position, called Labor 1, is an existing position that needs to be filled. The second, Labor 2, is a new position without currently authorized funds budgeted towards its salary. Town Manager Mike Farmer clarified that the first-year salary for Labor 2 was planned to be covered by the current DNR Next Level Trails Grant. Farmer further explained that after the grant runs out, the recent increase in water rates is supposed to cover the salary for Labor 2 in the future. To the Labor 2 is a new position. Um, we've had it in the Next Level Trail Grant uh, narrative from the beginning that we would hire two people um, to help uh, process that um, construction project 
And so we also um, will be hiring a, another additional employee in the future. Um, it runs a dual path with um, the water the water rate increase, which we added, we were going to add two employees to that as well. So this is in the budget for both, both positions. the next level trail and the water rate. So we have the money for it. But to be to be clear, Labor Two is a new position. Farmer requested that the funds for Labor Two be authorized by the clerk's office to proceed with the hiring process. The council approved the hire of Labor One and approved permission to hire Labor Two while salary funding is pending authorization. The next Ellettsville Town Council meeting will be held on February 5th. On Tuesday, local residents were invited to a public input session to modernize and make safety improvements to West 2nd Street between the Beeline Trail and South Walker Street. The public meeting happened at the First Church of the Nazarene, and it addressed several city projects, including a two-way bike lane, a replacement of traffic signals, and storm and drainage improvements. Project engineer Kendall Kenoki provided background on the project. A little background on the project. So why reconstruct 2nd Street? Well, as you know, uh, there was a large hospital here that has closed. You might be familiar with it. Um, and so that closure has been the catalyst for a lot of change in the area. You probably saw there's some other master plans up there that are going on. Uh, it's a big project for Bloomington, and the what's being called the Hopewell Project, Hopewell Development, uh, taking the place of that hospital is bringing new adjacent land use and residents to this area, so that is a big thing. Uh, this is also a unique opportunity. The city is in ownership of about half the property on the south side of 2nd Street currently. Uh, that kind of red area, the approximate hospital redevelopment area, that is all owned by the city currently, which is great because for a roadway reconstruction project, we don't have to go and acquire right-of-way from property owners. It's actually already the city-owned, so that is very helpful. Um, this is also an old road. You're probably familiar. I mean, this the infrastructure on this road is very aged. It is old, and it is also an important corridor. It's a primary arterial. It carries a lot of traffic, it carries a lot of pedestrians. It is definitely a big road for Bloomington and the community. Uh, and also, federal funding was awarded for this project, so that is great as well. He talks about other ongoing projects that would impact the various improvements proposed by the city in the area, including the Hopewell neighborhood and the Building Trades Park project. Uh, we have a few... Uh, adjacent projects that are influencing design. So the big one, of course, is the Hopewell redevelopment. Uh, this is the master plan. There's a lot of different moving parts with that project. There's, you know, other streets involved as well. But Second Street is kind of the northern uh, border of that project area. So um, that master planning effort is definitely a, a part of this project. And there was a, a big master plan put together for that. If you want to go to the next slide, we also have, of course, I would like to mention Building Trades. They are working on a master plan for Building Trades as well. Uh, I think they're working on a final plan for public release. They've had a few meetings about the park, so I just wanted to kind of plug that project as well. It's directly adjacent to the road, and we certainly want to uh, support that project in any way possible. I did want to mention, I don't have a slide for it, but uh, Bloomington Transit runs buses along this corridor. 
We have been coordinating with them. They have a big uh, transform Bloomington Transit strategic plan that's kind of guiding a lot of the decisions that they're making as part of, uh, you know, moving forward as a transit agency. So we definitely are supporting those. And this project was also prioritized by the uh, Bloomington Monroe County Metropolitan Planning Organization, the MPO. Uh, so that is just another factor in this project. Um, and because of their prioritization, we were able to get some federal funding, which City Council in 2022 prioritized the project and provided matching local funding for that federal funding. So that kind of was able to get all the pieces to come together for that. Kenoki walked through the existing conditions of the roadway, particularly on 2nd Street. He then listed the goals of the reconstruction. Uh, modernize the traffic signals is the first step here of what we're looking to do. Um, update utilities, so we want to definitely install a proper storm sewer drainage system and replace the aging water main, also look at some other uh, utilities, sewer, uh, old service connections, things like that. Um, we want to utilize the corridor to most effectively serve all road users, so that includes vehicles, transit, city services, emergency responders, bicycles, scooters, e-bikes, pedestrians, whatever the future brings in terms of that. Uh, we definitely want to provide comfortable pedestrian infrastructure that's meeting the latest accessibility standards, so that includes curb ramps and uh, the sidewalks themselves. And we want to ensure continued conveyance of vehicle traffic and emergency services. Uh, as the road handles now, and we definitely want to support transit. And part of that is accessible bus stops and just making sure that we are fitting in with the goals of the transit agency itself. Let's see. And we also want to make sure we're supporting the Hopewell redevelopment, the Building Trades Park master planning, existing neighborhoods, the existing businesses along the corridor. Uh, so those are kind of the goals. Design started in 2022, late 2022. Uh, so we've been working through kind of the preliminary and uh, first level of design. Neighborhood resident Sarah Ryderband asked how the city is maintaining traffic signals, street lights, and sidewalks in the area. What I want to know is a couple of things. One is this is land on the south side that is owned by the city of Bloomington. And I've certainly noticed that it's not being cared for. During the recent snow, none of that snow was removed from any of that land. And some of us walk on the streets. And as pedestrians, I believe not only is there an ordinance, but we deserve to be safe. So I'm wondering what the city is doing to care for their property. There's also a huge, at the moment, a huge dark space that goes from the alley just south of Maple, no, just east of Maple, and goes all the way down to Rogers on that south side of the road. None of those lights work until you get to Rogers. It is dark, and if you're walking at night in that area, it's rather frightening. Again, if this belongs to the city, what's the city doing to help us with the light situation? One of the places that inevitably I see traffic as someone who lives on 2nd Street back up is turning south uh, when you get to the health net. And 
traffic backs up considerably. So I've noticed that we don't keep a two-way uh, turn anywhere within this project except at the major intersections. So how do you anticipate that we're actually going to make that less of a snarl, much less if indeed you have an emergency uh, vehicle trying to get through that area, you now have, we're back to two lanes with nowhere for cars to pull off. How exactly are we addressing that situation? Uh, there are also drainage issues, which I've been mentioning for years to Andrew. Um, so I'm delighted that at the base of Morton on 2nd, that we're finally going to deal with what tends to be a small lake. That's great, but there are a few issues and probably more that need to be addressed in this. Thank you. Kenoki addressed the concerns that Ryder Band outlined. Uh, the snow removal, I will definitely look into. I'm not sure who's responsible for that, but I'm definitely going to try to find out. Uh, the lighting, again, we are trying to fix those lighting gaps as part of this project. Um, and emergency vehicles, we are coordinating with Bloomington Fire Department. They are in uh, full agreement with the design currently. So working through that, and then I can get with you after to make sure I covered everything you said. <laughs> Thank you for your comment. Local resident David Huber an Indiana University graduate who lives in the Prospect Hill neighborhood, said he wants to see walking and bicycling concerns as a top priority in the project. Really excited about this project. I just want to throw in my two cents on user experience. I'm a user experience designer, work in tech, and when I look at the project goals, there are a lot of great functionality requirements in there, improving the lights, you know, making things uh, functional from a utility perspective, and that's excellent. I would love to see at the top of that list create a wonderful walking and biking experience uh, in Bloomington because I think as the world continues to change, people want to live in great cities that you can walk and bike in easily. I think it'll be a given that it'll be easy to drive down the road. What does it look like to have a beautiful walking and biking experience? And if that's on the list, then maybe some of the things like lighting or art or places to sit become a bigger priority. And so I think that'd be great to see that uh, prioritized more in this project. Thanks. McDowell Gardens resident Sam Dixon shared that he wants to see a focus on pedestrian safety in the modernization and safety improvements project. Hey, I'm Sam Dixon. Uh, I live a few streets away in McDowell Gardens. Uh, I just want to say I think the project is looking like it's heading in the right direction. I love seeing uh, pedestrian islands to protect people who need to cross the street. I love seeing the protected bike lanes. Um, again, fixing the lighting and the drainage. That'll all help uh, with safety, which I think is the ultimate goal. And so I just want to say keep going in that direction. Two little uh, suggestions I have that I'd like to ask for would be at the B-line crossing, some vertical deflection. So when we're crossing on the B-line as pedestrians, we're not at threat of people trying to zoom in there and get in front of you. I've had way too many close calls. Um, and then also on the second and Rogers intersection, the turn lanes, I know you're working with limited space, but they're pretty shallow. So they're, they're kind of like slip lanes. People turn really fast there, especially coming down the two hills. Uh, so that's a bit scary, and I suggest the crosswalks could be shorter um, if you're working those corners out. Uh, that's all. Um, really appreciate you guys. 
neighborhood representative for the Hopewell Project, Richard Lewis, asked about the coordination of ongoing adjacent projects, such as the Hopewell neighborhood and the Building Trades Park. Um, I've been uh, a neighborhood representative in the public planning for the Hopewell neighborhood as that's uh, uh, been moving along. I've been attending the meetings uh, for the Building Trades Park Master Plan, and it's exciting to see all of this coming together. Um, but that also raises one question in my mind, uh, the coordination among these three different projects. And in particular, if I understood the exchange with Aobon earlier, um, where fair, newly created Fairview Street will be coming up from 1st Street to 2nd, um, across from what will be a south entrance to Building Trades Park. That's been planned, I think, as a major crosswalk. And in the current master plan uh, design for Building Trades Park, it says transit shelter there, and that's part of the plan. And we're developing what will be a whole new neighborhood with, I think the aspiration is, mixed levels of affordability in that housing. So that, to me, demonstrates a real need for public transportation at that spot, because that's quite a stretch from the B-Line all the way over to Walker, and that seems to be a key point where we're welcoming a new neighborhood, new residents, you know, families, children, people going this way and that. And so not only a safe crosswalk into the park, but, you know, a, a transit shelter that's a bus stop that's already being planned to, to make use of that. So I would encourage the city to, we are the customers. We, the community, are the customers. And I would encourage uh, Bloomington Transit to keep that in mind that we will have not just to think about our current customers, which I realize they need to do as they plan their stops, but the future customers, that future neighborhood that will be in place there to make use of that bus stop. Thank you very much. The city estimates that it will begin construction in 2025. If you want to provide feedback or ask questions about the project, you can visit wfhb.org following this broadcast. Up next, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on the WFHB Local News. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. You know something? One quarter of the 21st century has already turned into history. And as we look ahead, we're all facing a kind of pandemic that makes COVID-19 or influenza a hundred years ago, or even the Black Death that killed half the population of Europe in the 1300s look small. Scammers and swindlers are attacking far more people all over the world, and they're getting better every day at ripping people off and ruining their lives. These human viruses attack you daily, infecting every means of communication you use. 
If they get into your system, all too often there's no cure. The only defense you have is prevention, and that takes knowledge and awareness. You have to keep learning what they're up to and keep spotting their tricks and baits before it's too late. Artificial intelligence programs are helping the fraudsters make their schemes more attractive, more plausible, and more effective. Most scams are variations on relatively few kinds of gambits, so let's look at the kind of improvements going on right now. Transferring money online can be risky when hackers steal your personal information from some big company, so some people, including me, prefer to pay their bills the old-fashioned way, writing a check and putting it in the mail. But if a crook can get possession of one of your checks, they can cook it, chemically wash off the ink, except for your signature, make it out to themselves in any amount, and send it into your bank. This has been going on for quite a while, but hasn't been very widespread because it takes a lot of doing. Now, however, they can take a digital picture of the check, use sophisticated software to alter it, and print it out, watermarks and all. Much easier, and happening more often. A common way to steal a check is to get it from your mailbox when you leave the flag up so it's safer to take your envelopes down to a post office and mail them there. And, as always, keep a sharp eye on your bank account for funky transactions. Deepfakes, audio and visual recordings created by computers, have been getting incredibly good thanks to artificial intelligence. Scammers who use the telephone can now record your voice and duplicate it, AI lets them make phone calls to your bank or your broker, even answering security questions if they've bought your personal information on the dark web, and have your money sent to them. The best defense is something you may already be doing. Don't answer the phone if you don't recognize the caller ID. Let it go to voicemail. If it's somebody you know, call them back. If it's an institution or company you work with, Call back using their publish number, not the one on the voicemail. There's more to come next time. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember... Swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Up next, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro provides a rundown of news surrounding the disability community in today's edition of Disabilitant. We turn to Shapiro for more. Good evening. I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabilitin where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. The disability rights community gathers to mourn the loss of one of its most fervent supporters and founders, Judy Human. 
who passed away last Sunday at the age of 75. Born in Brooklyn in 1947, Judy Human was diagnosed with polio at the age of 18 months and used a wheelchair throughout the majority of her life. Until she was in fourth grade, Human was not allowed to attend public school with other students her age, as the school's administration had deemed her to be a fire hazard. She was instead educated at home twice a week for an hour by a representative from the New York Public School District. Her mother, though, never gave up and continued to fight for her daughter's inclusion, which was finally granted. Although her education had been granted, Human's fight against such an injustice in society was just beginning. In 1970, the New York Board of Education refused to grant her a teaching license on the grounds that she was, as stated earlier in her life, a fire hazard to her students and fellow staff. Instead of being put out, such a decision only served to grow the blaze of determination that Judy Human exhibited as she sued the Board of Education for her right to teach. Ultimately, the case was settled out of court, and Human became the first wheelchair-bound teacher in the state of New York. The case itself brought her to national attention, as it was cited in a New York Daily News article called You Can Be President, But Not a Teacher with Polio. Over the next 30 years, Judy Human would contribute time and again towards ensuring the inclusion of individuals with disabilities in all facets of life. In 1973, following President Richard Nixon's initial vetoing of Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which was meant to create national regulations preventing discrimination of individuals with disabilities attempting to partake in federal programs, she and over 80 other activists blocked traffic on New York City's Madison Avenue. Nixon would ultimately sign Section 504 into law. However, in 1977, while such national regulations meant to prevent segregation were written, they had not yet been signed into law. Judy Human led over 150 activists inside the San Francisco office of the federal department meant to craft the regulations, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, where they stayed for over 25 days, after which the secretary of Hugh, James Califano, relented and signed the Section 504 regulations into law. Throughout the remainder of her life, Judy Human's journey took her to many positions of leadership, from serving as Assistant Secretary of the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services at the U.S. Department of Education during the Clinton administration, to becoming the World Bank's first advisor on disability and development, and to serving as the first special advisor for international disability rights at the State Department during the Obama administration. Her biography, Becoming Human, was published in February 2020. In her words, quote, Disability only becomes a tragedy for me when society fails to provide the things we need to lead our lives. Job opportunities or barrier-free buildings, for example. It's not a tragedy to me that I'm living in a wheelchair, end quote. When Disabulletin resumes in two weeks' time, we will continue our investigative report, Lawyers, School, and Access, a history of special education law in the United States. We will pick up from 1930s Ohio, where parents had begun fighting back against what was at the time the traditional philosophy that disabled children were uneducable. We'll feature the arc of Ohio's CEO, Gary Tonks, who will expand upon how organizations such as his sought to combat this myth leading up to the first state court case that would shatter the myth of ineducable students with disabilities, 1971's Park v. Penn. For WFHB News, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn.
Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 